Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is Aaron Bradley. Aaron is a fifth generation farmer and the co-owner of Colfax Creek Farm and Colfax Creek Meat Company. He's passionate about making meaningful change to both food systems and farming systems by learning beside of and educating both consumers and farmers. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Now, you're a fifth generation farmer, so share a little bit. Did you grow up on the farm? Was it always in your part of your uh, who you were? I did grow up on the farm, and it was uh, it was kind of typical for some where uh, on a fifth generation farm, you had the first and second generation farmers that were doing a lot on it. Um, mm-hmm. My grandmother was third generation, and uh, she was in the generation that was really told in agriculture to get big or get out. And so, mm-hmm. you know, of her, her generation and my father's generation, it was, it was kind of the norm at that point, um, to, uh, to still have something to do with the farm, but to really be focused more on a, a town job and, uh, find a more viable career path at that time. Um, everything mm-hmm. was, was becoming more centralized. And so, uh, you were seeing, seeing folks leave the farm and uh, not really look at that as a as a potential career path, but going and finding work elsewhere, and then coming back and still doing enough on the farm to keep it going. If that makes sense. Yeah. So there, it was just kind of like we had the land, we were going to make sure something happened, but it wasn't the income. Correct. And then your parents? Did your parents come back to the farm, or are they still off farm? Uh. So my father, uh, my father worked on the farm uh, until. He was, um, and he was probably probably around age twenty, something like that. And uh, my grandfather had an accident, had a car accident, and uh, was told that he'd never be able to drive a tractor again, never be able to uh, to really do the the farm work. And uh, my uncle and my father were the two heirs at that point that would have uh, been in a position to take over the farming business. And I don't know that either one of them really had the interest or the opportunity to be able to do that. And so that's when they kind of dispersed everything. It was apple orchards up to, mm-hmm. to that point. And uh, they kind of got rid of everything. Uh, started focusing more on cattle production, just cow-calf stuff, maybe buying some small stalkers and, and wait to them at, the, at an auction and taking them back. Nothing, nothing really, um, nothing that you would look at as just a really viable enterprise that you would say, hey, this is, this is something we're going to try to scale or grow. It's really just something that they had going. Mm-hmm. So, so, and then when did you decide to come back to the farm? <laughs> I always tried to do something, you know, growing up as a kid there, it was, you, you'd, in a, in a sense, take it for granted because you don't really realize, you know, it's just home. It's just, it's just, the barn's just the barn and the pastures are just the pastures. And, you know, you kind of realize as you get a little bit older, um, you know, how, how blessed you are to grow up into something like that. And yeah. so, 
as I got out of high school and, you know, I did, I did some construction jobs and uh, did a few other things. And I'd always try to come back to the farm and my grandma would kind of run me off and, and be like, you can't, you can't make any money doing this. You need to go get a real job and you need to go find mm. something that you can provide for your family with. Um, because, you know, that was, that was a lot of her experience and uh, of seeing financial hardships um, in the agricultural industry and not, not necessarily at that time having uh, the opportunity to be able to direct market product like we have now. So I would, I would always try to go back, but uh, you know, I kind of meet a a dead end on, um, on any of the, of the enterprises that I would try to start there. And they were small and I wasn't necessarily serious about it at the time. I thought I wanted to do it and, and enjoyed it. Nobody else was doing too much about it. Uh, But uh, in, in 2014, when my wife and I got married, you know, I started really thinking about the future and, and the career path that I wanted to pursue. I had deep ties to agriculture and uh, really wanted to put myself in a position where I was prioritizing the family life that we would have, as opposed to just saying, Hey, I'm, I'm going to find a career path where I can make as much money as I, as I possibly can. And so I I really started trying to, uh, trying to look at it as how, how do I make an actual business out of this? What enterprises are there available to me? And, you know, what am I good at? What, what, what's practical for me to do this? And so in 2014, we really rolled up our sleeves and said, we're, we're either going to, we're going to try either way. We're going to make something of it or, or we're going to try until we fail. And, uh, and we've been at it ever since. Mm. And so now are you full-time on the farm? Yes. My wife and I are both full-time on the farm. Uh, we were, we were fortunate to both have career paths off of the farm that allowed us to, to spend a lot of time on farm, to, to build enterprises, to put some infrastructure in, to, to try to, to get the ball rolling. Uh, I worked full-time in the fire service. And so it's, it's kind of like a long hour, but fewer days schedule. And, uh, she was an elementary educator. And so they say you have summers off, you know, she, her, her days would end up a little bit shorter than, uh, than five o'clock typically. So there was still some time to work in the evenings. Weekends were off and, uh, you get, you get a, a pretty substantial amount of your summer off to be able to, uh, to work on building again, building these enterprises and building a business. Um, so I think we were really, really fortunate to have those schedules that allowed us to, to mm-hmm. have the income from uh, firefighting and from teaching, but also have a flexible enough schedule that we were able to, to build a business in the meantime. Yeah. Because I mean, neither of those are like huge money jobs, but they're consistent. And I think both of them probably came with insurance. So that was probably able to give you that transition period. Yeah. Yeah. There you're definitely not bankrolling in those professions by any means. Yeah. Um, but it, it is enough that you've got secure, secure money coming in, you know, your cash flow is good and you can take money and we're, we were really frugal and yeah. live really simply and, and we still do. And, uh, we were able to, you know, buy what we needed and put the rest into the business. And so, yeah, it was, a, it was a somewhat unique opportunity for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I think the thing to look at too, is that, now with your land, was that something you're able to rent it from your family or are you in the process of buying it? How is that working? Cause I know land is obviously one of the most expensive parts of starting a farm. 
so we farmed on my family's land for, for several years. And, okay. uh, you know, we, we started realizing after we had done it for a while, we started really crunching numbers and figuring that, uh, the acreage that we would have available to us, uh, we, we wouldn't be able to, uh, to support ourselves on livestock farming with that acreage and, and make a full-time career out of it and grow like we wanted to. Gotcha. My family's land's a, it's, it's, um, it's a pretty, pretty decent sized piece of property. There's a, there's enough pasture there if you had access to, to the whole thing, but you know, there's others involved with that too. The, that land is really the only, uh, farmland in that area. And so there was no real potential to be able to expand out and, and lease other pasture or hayland. And, uh, so we, we started finding other properties that we could lease, but with development pressure in the area, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of other types of farming in this area that make a lot more money, specifically uh, equestrian farming. Mm. And so landowners are a lot more attracted to uh, talking with somebody that can pay them exponentially more to maybe board horses there or, um, you know, do some training and lessons and, and lease their, their property out for that than for, uh, for livestock production. And so that put us at a disadvantage. Uh, we, we did that for a couple of years. We had some folks that they, they didn't need the money for the, for the lease. So they were willing to, um, to turn their head toward us and give us an opportunity to, to expand our operation and to, to really get our business going. Um, but we looked for a long time and we were, we tried to get really creative. We were, we were trying to find any and every way that we could just to find a piece of land. And we were spinning our wheels for a while while we were doing it. Weren't very efficient. We weren't making money, but we knew if we could find our own land and, and have the freedom to, to run our enterprises, uh, how we felt would be best. Um, that would create an opportunity for us to, to, to really grow our business. Mm-hmm. And so in 2018, we found in a neighboring County, um, we found a farm that had been sitting for quite a while. I tell people it's kind of like the, the five, five year, 10 year, 20 year effect where the house had set for about five years. Mm-hmm. Um, surrounding buildings there's there was like 12 barns on this property wow. some of them are just little equipment sheds and, I, and i'm counting like a corn crib as a, yeah. as a structure so 12 total structures on the property but the further out that you went um you know it, it was just completely overgrown uh what was once probably very pristine pasture was just overgrown with pine saplings and sweet gum saplings and so um not too many people were attracted to the property because they weren't looking at it as um, an investment into an mm-hmm. agricultural business. They were, they were looking at, Hey, can I buy this? And, uh, if they were farming, uh, they were looking at something that they maybe cut hay off of, or just turn some cows out. And, uh, you know, we looked at it. We swan is, uh, uh, one of our bigger in- enterprises, our pasture port program. And so overgrown land like that's a great opportunity to be able to, to turn hogs out and turn a profit in the meantime. So we weren't necessarily, we weren't afraid of it and, and saw the opportunity here that a lot of other folks didn't see. And um, so it was, it was advantageous for us having a different viewpoint and a different approach to the purchase of the property than it would have been for a lot of other folks, because we found the value that a lot of other people wouldn't have seen. Mm-hmm. So you were able to do make the calculations that, hey, we can pay X for this because we know the value of this for our operation. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, having stuff that was overgrown, the fence lines were, were a little run down and 
the house, you know, we had to come in and do a, a pretty decent remodel on the house. That's a, a thing, you know, I've, I've kind of bought tools and tried to learn different skills throughout my life. And uh, so I could, I can swing a hammer and, you know, fix a couple things up. I don't know that we could have afforded to have paid people to come in and had contractors do it. But between being able to do a lot of the work ourselves and knowing what we could do with this acreage, we saw opportunity there. The other thing is with the, with the entire cleanup, um, between my family's land or the, uh, the leased property that we had been on, both of those farms had sat somewhat idle for, um, for maybe a decade. You know, my family's land, uh, they, they really got out of heavy cattle production and uh, moved to, uh, to a lot of goats. And so some of the things that had grown up in the pasture, some of the fence lines, things like that, they, the, the more time that passed with my family, the smaller the acreage that was in their actual production guide. Mm-hmm. So when we started using my family's land, it was kind of, hey, this is the stuff that nobody's using this. It's out there. It's grown up. We had rolled up our sleeves and cleaned up a couple of farms before we purchased our own farm. And so we, we weren't intimidated by that and, and had seen the before and after and been a part of that process a couple of times. So it, it put us in the position that a lot of people would probably have been intimidated by, uh, and rightfully so, but we had been there and we're pretty, pretty stubborn and uh, said, you know, we, we've, we've gone this far. Uh, you know, we've got this and we've spun our wheels for a couple of years looking for something like this. Here it is. You know, the only thing that stands between us having what we want here and, uh, and where we're at now is a lot of hard work. So uh, if we're willing to do that, then, then we can, you know, put ourselves in a position that we can both potentially farm full time and raise a family here. And that's what, that's one of the biggest things that we look at as how we measure success in our business. Yeah. Wait a minute. Go back there. What's the biggest thing you measure success with? Family being able to be here, the quality of life. Mm -hmm. um, You know, that's a, that's a huge benchmark that when we started farming, you know, just a few short years ago, um, I looked at that and I was, man, that's possible. I don't be handed a farming business or you got to have, you know, some type of angel investor or something like that to be able to get to where you can, you know, farm with your spouse on the farm and raise a family there and be able to, to support your way of life. Um, yeah. So for us to be able to do that, that's like, man, we're, we're just, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's a huge, huge, um, measure of success for us. Mm. And now when you bought, were you looking for farms, what characteristics were important for you? Well, when we first started looking, you know, I'd made up my mind. I said, we're going to be able to find either if we find any acreage, it's not going to be any open land. Um, and vice versa, you know, if we find open pasture, it's not going to have, um, there's not going to be many acres with it. There's probably not going to be any infrastructure on anything that we can afford. Um, so we were really just kind of looking for opportunity and willing to build our business around what we were able to, to find. I think staying dynamic is a really important, um, a really important aspect in, in becoming successful in farming, especially for young farmers. So we were willing to somewhat build our enterprises around whatever property we could find. Um, Mm -hmm. with this property, it was 
like I said, it was completely overgrown. It had sat here for quite a while. It, it did help that um, there, the property, when we were able to purchase it, had recently been put in a uh, court-appointed executor of a state's hands. And so they didn't necessarily have um, financial interest in what it sold for. They didn't have ties to it. It was on their mm -hmm. desk. We were able to come in and make an offer. And that just took one thing off their desk. They didn't make more money or less money either way with it. Yes, so they were a flat rate executor. Yeah, it was, that was pretty helpful. It was timing is, was, was certainly of the, of the essence there. Um, but we were, yeah, to answer your question, we were really just at this, at the point that we bought our farm, really just looking for anything that we could find, you know, and this has a house and has, has a well and uh, fenced pasture and, uh, and, you know, the barns and things like that. I saw these barns and realtor, uh, was telling us, you know, they were like, I can, I can get you, uh, I can get you some numbers of folks that have some excavators and they, they can come in and probably tear a lot of this stuff down for you. And in my mind, I'm like, man, these farms that I've been leasing have no infrastructure as far as buildings yeah. and being able to keep materials dry. And, you know, we're out there with tarps and anything mm -hmm. that we can find. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cover it, space it, is such yeah. a premium. It yeah. is, it is extremely valuable. So yeah, all the things that people found as degrading to the property value here, we looked at with a viewpoint of this adds value to everything that we're trying to do. This puts us so much further ahead mm -hmm. with our own, with our own business and, and is more than we ever thought that we would be able to afford or uh, to, to end up with, especially so soon. Mm -hmm. Very and cool. it's all a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what was the first thing when you got on the farm that you started? Um, what was the first changes you made? So we, we got into the house. Um, you know, that was the biggest thing. We, uh, we were traveling about 25 minutes in uh, one direction from where we lived to get to the, the farm property that we were leasing at the time. And again, we didn't have, we didn't have a lot of infrastructure there. So if you, for example, if we forgot something that we needed, a tool or any of those things, and, uh, and, and that can be easy to do, you know, you're, you're driving an hour, sometimes an hour and 15 minutes before you ever really get anything done at the farm. If you realize once you yeah. got to the farm, I forgot this, now I got to drive back and then you got to mm -hmm. drive back over to the farm. So we really prioritized living on the farm. And so mm -hmm. we, we started working on the house and doing things. And uh, I told Nicole, my wife, I said, darling, I know me. As soon as I go to work outside, it's like, that's, that's where I want to be. So we need to make sure we get everything done with our house and, and, uh, and get it, get it to where we want it to be. And we, we are, um, we kind of settle with the happy medium there, knowing that we may end up, our, our goal for the house here is to have either a property for a farm manager or potentially interns, or maybe even turn it into some sort of office space in the, in the future. So we didn't want to make it our dream home, but we wanted to get it to where we could live in here comfortably for a few years and then hopefully build, uh, build or buy uh, something that we would be a little more comfortable in. It's, uh, it's about an 1,100 square foot house and the farm family that had this house before, before we bought it, the estate that we bought it from, uh, they had nine people living in this house at one time. Okay. And, uh, we've got, we've got, there's three of us now, if we were to have children in the future, you know, Nicole and I are already like, we, we may want a bigger house just to have another child. So, yeah. So 
yeah, that was, that was a big priority for us. Um, getting out and, and trying to get, we, we did make some, um, some decisions that I look back on now that I, that I'm glad I made everything that I bought on any piece of property that we, uh, whether it was my family's farm that we were, that we were leasing or, um, or other leased land. I didn't put anything in the ground that I couldn't pull up easily. I didn't, you know, all the water line that we put in was above ground. Mm -hmm. Everything that we had, we had the end goal of owning our own property. So we said, if we buy this water line, we want to buy it once we may roll it out here, but we can collect it back up and then transport it to our property and then put it into place there. And so we were able to do that. So, you know, working on getting those, um, semi-permanent systems into, into place and, and transporting everything that we had had from our other farms to our property uh, was a big part of it. And so, um, yeah, just kind of trying to reclaim the, the farmstead and, and the, and the landscape here was a big part of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, uh, so talk to us a bit about uh, your enterprises. What are the different enterprises you have on the farm? So we do um, 100% grass-fed cattle. We have a cow-calf operation. We also have a stalker operation. And uh, everything that we have um, is put into our grass-fed beef program and finished for beef for direct marketing to a consumer. Uh, we also have a fair-to-finish swine program, and uh, it's the same thing. Uh, we rarely sell calves or, or piglets. Um, we typically take everything up to a finished weight and then direct market that product either to a retail consumer or to a wholesale consumer. Um, we, we've done poultry in the past. We've done, you know, pastured broilers and uh, we would do a few thousand of those a year. We've done turkeys. Um, we up until recently had a flock of about, um, of about a thousand laying hens and we've really just streamlined and, and are focusing just on our cattle and hog operations for right now. Um, inputs, expensive inputs have had, um, have, have had some weight on our decision with that, but that's also something that when we first started, we were, we were doing a, trying to do a little bit of everything and now focusing on the specific enterprises that we find the most value in and that contribute the most back to the business is our priority here on the farm. That's what we have on our farm. With our meat company, we work with partner farmers under very strict protocol to help us keep up with demand. Okay. So we have, um, we have protocols and we have a recruitment process where we really find farmers that we feel like have the potential to do a very good job or already doing a very good job. We're certainly not looking for low-hanging fruit when we when we go out to find these farmers. We're we're trying to find ones that excel at what they're doing. Uh, our swan um, program or our pork program with our growers, you know, there's a lot of uh, prerequisite qualifications that we have in place that are very important to us because consistency and quality of the end product is what makes us money, and so we have to have that in our factored into our our production models to make sure that we achieve that. Mm. Um, so, you know, having a fixed, fixed formulated ration that's approved by uh, either one of our nutritionists or a nutritionist that we approve of mm -hmm. and that we vet 
um, those, those are important things, you know, the, the obvious things, you know, the breeds and, and, the uh, a pastured setting and the, the standards that they have, uh, for, for their animal welfare and their land stewardship are extremely important to us. And those are, those are addressed in our protocol, but our, our meat company, our goal with that is to really work with farmers that may not have an opportunity to market their own product. And Colfax Creek is a brand for those farmers so that they can continue doing what they do best and paying attention to the quality of the product, the animal welfare, the land stewardship, and just being really great farmers. But we go out and we, we help to tell their story. We work hand in hand with them to help them continue to farm on their family land and, and any legacy that they may have. And, and that's not necessarily, it, it can be a first generation farmer that's working toward creating a legacy or working toward, um, you know, trying to farm full time, like Nicole and I have been there, um, you know, trying to give them opportunity that, that they can find a, they can find financial viability through our brand and just farm and not have to worry about marketing and not have to worry about getting the product to the end consumer. We take care of all those things. And it just, you know, that's, that's one of the things that we decided that we were going to do formally last year, we formed an LLC for it. We've transparently worked with partner farmers for several years now, but when we decided to form the LLC, it was really a decision of, you know, we're, we're taking the next step to be bigger than just who we are here at our farm. And we're really trying to make bigger change in our food and farming systems. And to do that, you know, you've kind of, you, you have to work collectively and you have to be able to compete with uh, some larger brands that may be doing some greenwashing or maybe, you know, trying to, to come into the market and just beat people on price or whatever it may be uh, in order for us to be able to compete with them, we have to scale and we have to focus on efficiencies and we have to focus on being able to get a consistent quality product in the hands of a chef or a restaurant group or whatever that may be at an affordable price and in a manner that they're already familiar with. So it's that's something that we decided to do and you know we're, we're putting our head down and really focusing on growing that business and and you know becoming a having a larger impact and becoming a larger brand so that we make more honest and meaningful change mm-hmm. all right so talk about some of those efficiencies that you put in place on the meat company side it's really just you know finding you know we when we when we first started processing we would take a couple animals and you know, you start looking at it and you figure out how much it costs and you figure out your overhead uh, per pound just to transport the animal, just to have one animal uh, fabricated into either a food service cut or a retail cut. And, you know, if you start looking at that, the Lord, the more that you're taking at once, obviously the less it costs, maybe not on the processing and fabrication side, but on the transport side, it costs a whole lot less to take you know, 25 or, or, you know, 60 or however many that you're hauling as it does to take, you know, three Mm -hmm. or, or even 10. So you're able to go with full trailers then and and hit that efficiency. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a big thing, you know, keeping on top of your numbers is is an extremely important thing in, in any business. And I think, especially in agriculture, especially in 2022 with, with the way that things cost and, 
you know, I feel like it's a pretty, pretty fragile market in a lot mm-hmm. of, in a lot of ways, but, um, yeah, figuring out how many do I need to be hauling for this to be efficient because you, you have to, you hear so many different people talk about this in agriculture. You have to take yourself out of the picture because if something happens and you're out of work for two weeks or two months, whatever, you got to be able to pay somebody to go do that. Yeah. So making sure your numbers are right is, I mean, that, that is the first step to sustainability. And for us, you know, we can't really, if, if we just look at, at hogs, you know, for us to do anything less than I'll say 25, I would rather do 30, uh, at a time, you know, we really start getting into a point where we're not making margins to be sustainable as a business. So yeah, just looking at those, looking at the advantages of, of scaling and, and getting the operation where it needs to be. But there's a lot of different, um, there's a lot of things that affect that because just because you can transport them and just because you can process them, you got to worry about all the other logistics and the sales and the order fulfillment and everything else that goes with that. Mm-hmm. So, so then yeah. what, uh, so, so what, uh, so you have a fulfillment building that you pack orders in? How does that all, how does that system work? We have product that goes out. The best way that works for us is for product to be uh, picked up from our processor and okay. then distributed that way. Um, we also have uh, cold storage here on the farm where we pull and pack orders. And mm-hmm. so that could be mm-hmm. either food service or uh, retail orders, shipping, whatever it may be. But then we also, uh, we lease, we're fortunate to be in, um, in an area where we were able to find uh, some space to be able to lease uh, cold storage as well. And so it's, it's a little bit of a mixed bag when it comes to how that is. It would, the ultimate scenario for us to be, to be in would be to have uh, something here on site or perhaps uh, maybe a warehouse with cold storage that we lease and, and have complete control over uh, to be able to distribute our product out of there, to pull and pack everything, to keep up with rotation and inventory and all the fun things that go with it. Uh, but for now, it's a little bit of a, it, it's kind of just taking advantage of whatever opportunity you have and, and making it work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, okay. So then you get product processed and then are people picking up like quarters and halves right from the processor? Oh, uh, we don't really sell too many of those. Most of the okay. stuff that we sell is, is food service. Um, we sell those whenever we can, but the majority yeah. of the product that we sell is it's a case, you know, like you would be looking at yeah. a boxed beef or a boxed pork brand of, you know, it's a, it's a case of loins or, you know, a case of ground beef or something. And uh, they're just, those things are being palletized and just uh, sent out through um, some small local distributors or our personnel uh, picking that product up and then sending it out and distributing with our, with our own uh, transportation and, and our own cold storage stuff. Yeah, gotcha. Hey, Thriving Farmers, each year we are faced with two important investment decisions. We should be investing in systems that increase productivity and in inputs that develop soil. In December of 2020, I was introduced to a seed, soil, and foliar prebiotic treatment. This product is called Ultra. Ultra is an OMRI-listed prebiotic formula manufactured by AgriGrow. I have personally been running several trials testing Ultra on my farm. I'm impressed. Ultra increased our strawberry yield production by 18%. On a 900 square foot trial, $6 in product cost returned me $868 worth of marketable strawberries. 
We also had decade-old heirloom corn seed that I have been trying to germinate with no success. In a Hail Mary attempt with my remaining few seeds, I soaked them overnight in a diluted solution of Ultra. They germinated. If you would like to try Ultra or any other agro product, I believe this would be a worthwhile investment on your farm. Here's the best news yet. Agrigrow has agreed to offer a 10% discount to all thriving farmer listeners. Simply use the coupon code THRIVE when you check out. Again, that is T-H-R-I-V-E for a 10% off discount on your first order. Head to smallfarm.solutions to order today. So let's talk about your team. How, do, how have you built your team to be able to scale with this? Oh, man, that is... Because uh, how many people do you have total? We've got, we've got, if you count all of our part-timers, and some of those are very part-time part-timers. Um, you know, we've, we've probably got 10 or 11 people. Okay. Some of these folks come in and work just as needed. You know, we may get a uh, call from them. They may be busy in their own life and, and you know, they'd been on a part-time basis. Uh, we've, we've got an employee now and, you know, she is, she's taking the majority of uh, the summer off. She's getting married. That's a huge season of her life. Yeah. And it's like do your thing. We're here. She'll call us and and we may hear from her in a couple of months. And then she's back on board. And we're some of these, some of these folks, again, it's capitalizing on opportunity as it comes along. Uh So if we find folks that are able to come in and they can contribute for a short amount of time, we take advantage of that, you know, and it's a good reciprocal relationship to where it's good for them. They're compensated well, and, you know, they enjoy what they're doing. And it's good for us in, in growth because a lot of these folks will bring their own farming experiences or business experiences in. And, you know, if nothing else, they can help you become more idealistic about certain things and help you um, maybe shift your viewpoints on the way that you look at a certain enterprise or the logistics within an enterprise. And so there's a lot of advantages to that. The day-to-day stuff is really uh, the day-to-day stuff that we have. There's, there's three of us that just keep the wheels turning here. And, uh, you know, my, my wife and, uh, we have a full-time employee that's here and I think he'd be here eight days a week if we'd let him, uh, Sam Baracus. And, uh, he, Sam came to us from, uh, a large, pretty, pretty substantial size cattle operation in, um, Colorado and Kansas. And so a lot of livestock experience, it, we were very fortunate being able to turn him loose when he got here, he had, he was extremely comfortable around cattle. Um, he, you know, hogs are, hogs are a little bit different, but learn that super quickly. And, you know, if you're comfortable around animals, that's one of the, that's one of the best things that you can bring to, uh, to contribute to a livestock operation. We get a lot of mm-hmm. folks that come in that, you know, they're, they're great with systems and they're great with mechanics and things like that. But if you're, if you don't have that, that experience with animals, then, you know, that's, that's a huge learning curve. And I think the more that I do this, I'm, I think that you can learn more of, of how to work animals as you go. But I really, part of me is leaning more toward you either have that or you don't, you know, some people either have that ability to be able to do it and they can really hone those skills and, and, they're natural at it. Um, I think some people can learn how to do it a little bit better, but they just may not ever be comfortable with it and may not ever have the desire to do it or just the understanding of, 
you know, a pig's only a couple of feet off the ground, their viewpoint's totally different than ours and the way that you behave with that animal Mm -hmm. compared to how you behave with, you know, uh, an 800 pound steer is going to be completely different. Those animals work differently. They behave differently and react differently. But, um, but you know, we, we keep some part-timers on and, um, you know, helping us, helping us with bigger projects, but finding employees for us, we found a lot more success in word of mouth from, from folks that know of us and have maybe, they've maybe came out and, and done a couple of projects with us, or they may be a restaurant account that we have or just friends of ours. And they hear of somebody and, you know, that person, they refer them to us. And, and we yeah. found a lot more success with, with word of mouth and being patient than trying to post on, um, you know, Indeed or Monster or any of these other job posting websites. Um, we haven't found much success with that at all. A lot of people yeah. think they want to farm, but when you, when you have a mutual friend or a mutual acquaintance that can somewhat vet that person for you and say, this person has experience on a farm, they can come in and they can contribute to the business then, you know, that's, that's pretty valuable. Um, it, to, to get folks off of, uh, a website, maybe when you post farming, people think that they're, they're like, Oh man, they see green acres. They're going out there and it's sunshine and everything's going to be beautiful mm. all the time. And I'm going to pet a baby pig and, and all that. And it's, uh, it's quite a, a shock to them when they get out there and you learn that, you know, this is, it's, it's pretty hard work. Yeah. So 98 degrees at 8 a.m. and you're, you know, it's raining sweat down your brow. That yes, will wake sir. you up real quick. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, so talk about, so you've got the team. Talk about, you know, getting that team unified behind the vision. How do you, how, what's your process for that? So I think that, um, you know, we talk about consumers um, not having, not really being as educated as we would like for them to be. As, uh-huh. as you know, the farmers looking at consumers that way. But I also think really high potential employees may have may have that same struggle. Right. And um, even the folks that they may work on any type of farm and they come in and, you know, you're you're working toward an end goal and really trying to motivate them. I think that that a lot of that comes through education of, you know, this is this is the contrast of what we're doing. You know, this is why it's so much harder for us to do this, but these are the all, the other alternatives. You know, if, if I speak on animal welfare, uh, when we set up areas for, um, for farrowing for our sows, uh, it would be a whole lot easier, perhaps on the farmer. I don't know. I, I can't speak from experience on this, but I would imagine to be able to just move an animal down a concrete alleyway into a gestation crate and, you know, have an automated feeder it's probably a whole lot easier on the farmer Mm -hmm. and a whole lot less labor intensive, but to go and to move a sow and to set her up in her area, um, you know, there's a lot more invested on it and it's a lot more labor intensive for us, um, to be able to do those things, but you educate that, that employee on, Hey, this is the alternative. This is, this is how most pork is produced. Or if you look at feedlot cattle, this is how most, uh, most beef is produced. And they start to see those things and they start to see that, you know, we're not just trying to do this right here on, on our small farm. We're, we're really trying to make a larger impact. And they get behind that and they see, wow, I can be a part of something 
that is that is making meaningful change it's at that point they're going to come to the table with their own ideas and with their own motivation and their own enthusiasm and and you know you letting them know hey if you come in and you do a good job like i'm gonna we're gonna compensate you to help make positive change on the planet mm-hmm. now you get the you right know, you, yeah yeah you get the right people on the team. And I, I think what you just said there too, is you kind of give them the why behind what you're doing. And I think that really helps. Yeah. Um, now, do I, you I do, some, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you look at these different generations. That's one of the things I, I can't remember all of it. I wish I could, but I've been through all these different trainings, especially mm-hmm. uh, in the fire service where they talk about these generations are more motivated by this. And of course it's by individual, but you know, the, the younger generation that we deal with now, you know, that's, they want to know that, that they're doing a good job. Um, but the majority of the generation wants to know that their, their work is meaningful and that they're yeah. contributing to something that they can support. And they're not just, you know, making money for the man, if you will. Um, so yeah, if you get the right folks in and, and do that. And I think it's Jim Collins in his book, good to great. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he talks about it's not just getting people on the bus. It's about getting the right people on the bus. And, and we've certainly learned that over the years. Yeah. Now, do you offer any sort of like a profit share with your your main team folks? Or is that something you're still looking to implement at some point? Or you don't think that that's something in your future? Yeah, that's something that we're working on. Um, I, th- I think if you do a profit share with your team, then that creates um, – creates a sense of accountability amongst the mm. entire team. And that's what we look at too, is, you know, I told, I, this is our business. We're the owners, I guess at the end of the day, you know, we make the ultimate decision, but I mean, if we're out here doing stuff and there's a way for us to improve the things that we're doing, Hey, tell us, let's, let's talk about this because our success is your success and vice versa. Yeah. The profit sharing really, it, it creates an opportunity um, to, allow the team to really all rise together and hold each other accountable, you know, and that's, that's somewhat of the culture that we're trying to create is getting really high performers that come in and, and again, they're, they're wanting to work towards something bigger than themselves. And so when they look at it, it's not just somebody that's coming in to say, Hey, I'm going to milk the clock until whatever time and I'll get my paycheck on whatever day. And, you know, it's just another job. The profit sharing uh, at the end of the day really puts it to where the more money that the business makes, the more money that they walk away with. So when they're looking at that, they, they develop a different viewpoint and they say, <laughs> well, this system could be improved and make more money for everybody. Yeah. Well, instead of having folks that come in that just say, hey, well, I get the same either way. If you, if you have it to where they're sharing the profits of the business, then they're going to say, man, I, I can make more money. Like we all make more money. It's not just ownership makes more money if we if we sell more if we are more efficient or if if this happens you know if things go well then it, it's great for everybody how how do i contribute to that and how do i help the person next to me contribute to that so mm-hmm. that the profit sharing is a bigger picture thing of the culture that we're trying to create at colfax creek mm-hmm. yeah and do you now talk let's talk about uh team meetings do you have like daily team meetings weekly team meetings Yes, we do. That could be a five or 10 minute morning meeting. That could be a little bit longer meeting where, you know, we're talking about what are we trying to achieve this month? What are we trying to achieve uh, this quarter? Or like, what's our long-term goals? You know, and each of those meetings are different and at different times. 
Um, and some of them are, are some of the best meetings that you have. And they may come after work when you're when you're sitting there looking over the farm and, and just, you know, shooting the breeze for a little bit. You uh, you start talking about things that are that are going on in the operation and they, you know, those issues come up organically. If you put it on a calendar, which, which we do that, we have a day of the week where we, you know, one day we focus on finances and, you know, one day we're, we're looking at um, production efficiencies and logistics and, and, you know, all the important things to the business. But Mm -hmm. a lot of times some of the best meetings, like I said, they just, they just come up organically, you know, after work when you're just sitting around and you're talking about the hard day you had and that person is bringing up and, um, they want to talk about, Hey, we did this, or I've been thinking about that. And, and you kind of start a meeting accidentally, but it ends up being super productive. And, you know, you may not be sitting in an, in an office with a whiteboard, but you're talking about things that are really making change in the business and, and driving, driving you forward. Um, so even though it may be a different setting, it's certainly, certainly, uh, more efficient maybe, or more, uh, productive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about your marketing because it sounds like you know your your focus of the especially with the meat company is more to be on the marketing and fulfillment side and you let other farmers do with the actual growing yeah so we've we've always done our marketing ourselves for the most part we've um we brought some folks in and and we've done a little bit more here recently but you know marketing is we, we look at marketing in different avenues, uh, depending on the target audience. Um, you know, and that's, that's one of the big things you see from, from my viewpoint, I I think there is a lot, there may be some twisting that goes on with some other, um, you know, if you look at different industries or if you look at different brands or whatever it may be, you know, sometimes people will just tell you whatever you want to hear. And and they're just trying to get your money. And the marketing that we're really focused on is telling that story and trying to hit that that center spot, that sweet spot that we're looking at of, you know, we're still we're an extremely small company. We're a very small brand. Um, You know, you can come and talk to the owner of the company. Uh, My personal cell phone is posted on our website, you know, so, Mm -hmm. I mean, we're certainly you, you get that that feeling of I talked to the person who, you know, produced this beef or this, this pork or these eggs or whatever it may be. But also, you know, you have to, to look at it differently too with the, with the approach of, you know, if we're going and talking to, um, if, if I'm going to talk to a chef, right. Who's over or a, you know, a manager over a restaurant group or whatever that may be, those two people are going to hear the truth from me. Mm-hmm. but they may, if you're giving them that elevator speech, if you will, there's different things that are going to be important to them. Right. So you're, you're capitalizing on the opportunity of getting in front of that target audience and letting them know what you're doing, what your capacities are, how if, are you capable of doing these things and letting them make the decision? You know, I, I don't believe in, in fabricating words to, uh, to try to influence somebody to buy something from you just to tell them that something's happening. You know, again, that's, that's how I'll tell people, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to go broke in this business, it may be because we're just going to be too honest with people, mm-hmm. but it is something that, you know, to market really, that's one of the biggest, 
biggest things that we grapple with. And that's one of the biggest challenges is trying to figure out how do you spend your, your money to market the best, you know, how do you get the best bang for your buck? How do you, is that through Facebook ads? Is that through, you know, hiring somebody to do your social media? Is that through, um, some sort of, of printed literature, whatever it may be. Um, but it's a big challenge. And a lot of it, honestly, marketing, we invest our marketing, I would say, in developing relationships more so than we do on uh, just trying to, to get something out there in front of people at, at this point. Um, because we are so small. You know, that, that's something that we can do is we can still talk to, the, to anybody that wants to purchase our product, even if that's through a third party they can easily access us and talk to us. We can tell them the story. We can tell them who we are. We can tell them everything about us and they can make a decision based off of that. And if they aren't looking for a farm like us, or if they're not looking for Colfax Creek and what we're doing here, we'll help them find somewhere that they are. Mm-hmm. But, and that could change maybe down the road. Um, if we get to a point where we are not able to, to be in front of that customer all the time, if we, you know, you never know what the future holds. If we were to end up in some sort of uh, grocery chain or something, and then all that that person has to make a decision off of is a label in front of them and the claims on that label and maybe a third-party certification, then we may look at our marketing a little bit differently then at that point. But at this point, we're still small enough that we can directly answer those questions to somebody and, and talk to them. Yeah, absolutely. Now, with with that, are you where are you finding new customers? Is that coming through social media? Is that coming through just pounding the pavement, looking for new uh, purchasers? Yeah, a lot of that comes through. Um, a lot of it comes through word of mouth. I okay. Think. Um, especially in food service, it seems like just being persistent and trying to to keep your name out there. It's a real challenge because you get, you get told no way more than you get told. Yes. Mm-hmm. But once you, once you kind of get in with the right people and there's no telling who that's going to be, you get in with the right, right group and they enjoy your product. Well, it's going to be a whole lot more uh, impactful for a chef to hear it from another chef that they respect or um, a family to hear it from another family that they, that they are friends with, then it's going to be for you to go try to, to put something out there in front of them. We get so we get fatigued from, you know, just all the saturation of emails and different marketing and, you know, different sales that we see all the time that I, I don't know. And there's people a lot smarter about the subject than I am that could talk about how, um, you know, this is, the, the way that consumers react uh, to this type of advertising and, you know, however many impressions and all that. But I feel like if you develop good relationships, that's the most important way to pick up new customers or to market yourself because mm-hmm. that person is going to have more weight on their friend or their professional colleague or whatever it may be, they're, they're going to have more weight on their decision and more influence on their purchasing than you're going to be able to do in just, you know, trying to put a Facebook ad out there, trying to, um, you know, again, have printed rat cards or something at a, at a local co-op maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you doing any, um, 
Are you doing any like referral program or is it just people love your product and want to share that with a friend? We, um, we've tried some referral programs. Um, again, I don't know if that goes back to maybe people just being so saturated with do this and you can get that. Um, you know, if you'll tell somebody this or that, we, we've seen a little bit of success in it, but not, not too much. Um, I think it's just really focusing on production and quality of product and the consistency of the product. Those are the important things that we have found have brought us more success than trying to get creative and, and say, hey, you know, we'll, we'll give you X amount off if you, you know, refer this many friends or you'll get this free package. And it, it's not necessarily worked for us. We haven't really poured a lot of effort into that. But and, and I think that those programs could work well and maybe a good opportunity for us even uh, to try. But, you know, the, the little bit of uh, experimentation that we've done with in the past just has it's not something that we've said, man, this is awesome. Let's just let's focus our efforts on this and it's going to mm-hmm. grow our business and our, our customer base exponentially. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I haven't seen that. I think it's just really just somebody just having a good product and you find these customers that, you know, if they're in, especially in meat, because it is so much more expensive to buy um, responsibly produced products than it is to buy uh, something where the production models, their primary focus was just producing a, a cheaper product. Those sophisticated consumers, I feel like are, they find you, they see that you're doing a good job. They want to go tell their friends. They want to bring their friends there. They'll say, you know, they love seeing people that stop shopping at a large, you know, box store for, for whatever product and go to a local farmer's market and purchase their product there to a local farm. And so they get excited about it. They bring their friend. That's a success story for them. They get fired up about it. Uh, so I, I really feel like just doing a good job for, for us has worked well with just let's just make sure that they're going to have a great experience with us. And that may mean that may cost you a lot of money and you didn't have a product and you told them that you, that you might, and they pre-ordered it with you and they're having a family event and, you know, they're going to have 12 people that come over to their house and you messed up your inventory. So that may mean that you're giving them 50 bucks worth of product for free just to go the extra mile and say, Hey, you know, we messed up. We didn't have the inventory you pre-ordered with us. Um, this is how, how can we make this right? Take this product for free. That is going to leave a really good impression on that customer too. And they mm-hmm. are not going to feel like they owe you anything necessarily, but that's how you, in my experience, the customer service element of it really brings people back too. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. What would you say your favorite farm tool is? I would say my seed drill. Uh, my seed drill okay. is probably my favorite one. Um, I like my chainsaw. Yeah. Uh, on farm tools, these are, those are two of my favorite things. I think my most important one's probably my cell phone, but uh, it's definitely not my favorite. So yeah, I I really like seeing um, improvement in soil health with uh, cover cropping, and so. Um, taking a seed drill and, you know, being able to, to be very precise with it, with, you know, your depth and just planting things at the right time at the right moisture level and um, seeing what that does for a piece of land, I think is that that's probably my favorite tool. 
um, and, the, and the best thing that we have on the farm for overall improvement. Do you have specific mixes that you're fans of with that? I like to get creative. Um, I learn, I'm learning more and more about it. And, you know, that's, I hope I'll look back in five years from now, just like I do and look back on, you know, Aaron five years ago and say, man, I, I've learned a lot since then, but mm. I, I like really trying to go out and learn what your indicator species are and uh, see what's naturally trying to grow in that area. And then looking at what plants can I put to help maybe um, convert some of those nutrients or, or, you know, capture some of those nutrients so that it's going to improve the overall soil health. Right. So if I can find an indicator species that may be telling me that I'm, I'm low on phosphorus levels and I can plant something that's going to improve that and unlock a lot of those phosphates, then that, to me, um, that gets me excited being able to see that improvement. But I, I don't necessarily have a single mix that I like. I just like trying to find these things and, and say, Hey, you know, what, what am I trying to, what am I trying to do here? Am I focusing on, on water infiltration and retention? Am I focusing on trying to build up more organic matter? Um, am I trying to bring in more pollinators? You know, what, what's my end goal? Mm-hmm. Where do I feel like we need the most improvement? And then trying to create a mix that is um, is symbiotic, but is really going to improve the ecosystem and work toward my end goal. Mm-hmm. So let's say you're going for water infiltration. Is you know um, daikon something you would use, or some really super deep rooted crops? Yeah, I think um, I think there's benefits with the daikons and like sunflowers, um, things mm-hmm. that have those. Uh, deep tap roots are going to be super beneficial. Um, they're going to help to unlock the nutrients that may already be in the soil and help to, to cycle some of those, but yeah, breaking up our farm was, uh, I've talked to some of the other farmers around here and the historical context that we have on our farm is a lot of the land was conventionally tilled. And apparently the guy would do it. Didn't really pay attention to, to moisture in the soil when he would till and um, created a lot of compaction because of that. He would till wet soil and mm-hmm. go in and then compact it. And it's, you know, so um, being able to, to plant something like a daikon that's going to go in there and really break that stuff up and improve our, our um, water infiltration rates and also the water retention. Those, um, yeah, that's, that's a cool thing for us to be able to do and, and something that I get excited about, but there's a, you know, Sayre has some really good resources on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a cover crop manual. You could go in. I was, uh, I think you, I don't think it costs very much. You may even be able to download it for free. Um, but they have an entire cover crop manual that talks about pretty much anything that you would imagine planning. Um, there's some, some really good books out there too. Dirt to soil is a good book. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of different resources that are available to to figure this stuff out, and you know, I'm learning more about it every day. I think that's one of the most important things of of trying to become successful is always learning more. So, um, yeah, I certainly wouldn't consider myself an authority on it or or an expert, but excited to to learn more about it and to uh, to continue to uh, improve our land with it.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that book you're talking about is managing cover crops profitably. And if you just type that in and in the word SARE, S A R E, it is a f- available free as a PDF. So um, yeah, you can download it. I actually downloaded it, printed it off, and uh, three wine, three hole punched it and having a in a, in a um, a book, but um, it's a great book. It is getting a little bit, at least the version that's out here is getting a little bit dated. Um, so I forget what year this was created in 2012. So it's now 10 years old. Um, and I think what you said right there, dirt, the soil, you know, that kind of, I think catches you up the next five or six years. Um, so uh, yeah, some great resources. I wish they would work on another version. Cause I know there's a lot of new things happening all the time with this that we need to learn more about. So. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a, it's an exciting time to be in agriculture with all the things that we're, I feel like we're learning so much as an industry right now, especially with soil science and, and uh, looking back on previous uh, decades and, and seeing the way that we did things and the long-term effect, we really have some, some really good measurements for that now. So we're seeing yeah. what we thought may have been really good at the time and, and how we can improve that now. And then seeing um, how we can be adding topsoil or, you know, increasing water infiltration rates and all these things at a much faster, faster pace than what we once thought. So, but I, I think, I think the weather patterns and I think so many other elements have changed over the past several years and shifted a little bit. So it makes everything a little bit different in your growing season and your planting season. And so a few more challenges, I agree with you. I think, um, I think they're due for an update, but I think they're extremely beneficial. Yeah. Absolutely. What advice would you give to a, a new farmer? Just be ready to work really hard. Uh, but I, I think I would say to really take a um, take an open approach to to the industry and to try to figure out, you know, what resources you have available to you. Uh, what you really want to do, but then what opportunities are there out there in the marketplace that um, that you may be able to uh, to capitalize on, and uh, and don't try to do too much at once. Mm. I I look back if I could tell myself when we started, if I could give myself some advice, I did a couple of things wrong. I feel like I started doing. You know, we we were like we're going to do everything because mm-hmm. we wanted to find a way to make money. And we said, the more enterprises we have, the more stuff we'll have for sale, the more money we'll be able to bring in. And, you know, obviously it doesn't, it doesn't really work that way. The more enterprises you have, the, the more money it's going to cost you. And then, you know, with the limited resource with us, with being time, you know, that's just, you don't have those efficiencies built into those enterprises. And so they don't, that it doesn't work the way that you would imagine it in your head. So we try to do too much at once. Um, but a but a big thing that we did that I would do differently is we would look at a farm and say, well, they're doing this and it works well for them. So we're going to do that same thing here and it's going to work well for us. Mm. And that may not be a specific enterprise. It may be um, housing for a specific enterprise or it may be just the systems that make up that enterprise. And we didn't really take a step back and look at it and say, well, this would work a lot better for us if we did it this way, if we shifted and, you know, maybe, maybe did it a little bit differently, same end result, but the way that we would get there would be a little differently. The, again, housing or any of those kind of things. 
we just looked at it and said, well, somebody else is doing this. It's working for them. They're making money. We're going to do the exact same thing and it should work for us. So my advice would be don't do too much at once, figure out what you're good at, what opportunities there are available and try to try to capitalize on that in the marketplace and figure out what systems actually work best for you with the resources that you have available. Just because it works well for somebody else doesn't mean that it's going to work great for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a huge thing. You know, a lot of people go down, let's say like polyface farm and say, I want to grow these, do these 10 by 12 pens. And I just interviewed someone last week for the podcast and said, that was the worst invention in the world. So, <laughs> um, you know, figuring out the systems, the processes and the, the setups that work for you is definitely, you know, it works for polyface because their systems, it doesn't work for other people. I don't know if you've seen the videos of the, um, I don't know, it's pasture bird that's now worn by, I think is it Purdue. And they're basically automated moving tractors that are like, I don't know, huge that are traveling across the prairies. Yeah, that uh, Salatin style tractor is one of the specific things I could um, I could talk about that we could have done differently. You know, I looked at, I was like, man, it, it's Joel Salatin. It's, it's yeah. using this. And, and you know, we, we kind of banged our head against the wall with them for a little bit and we're like, you know, maybe, maybe we could find something that works better for us here. Yeah. Uh, and it took us a little bit longer to do that than, than it should have. But again, I was like, you know, the pastured poultry man himself is, is using these. It's gotta be the best system. It's gotta be this. And uh, it certainly works well for them. That, that's why they're using them. But for us, you know, we could have found a better alternative for our settings earlier if we would have just kind of had an unbiased viewpoint of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I've seen uh, Mark Baker up, I think he's in Michigan or Wisconsin. He's got a pretty interesting concept um, that he's working on. And then there's a few other, you know, smaller pens. I mean, I'm obviously a plan, always a, 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 a proponent for scale. So, you know, these people that are using modified like hoop houses, um, you know, those to me are the kind of the way to go. But again, if you're not doing it that scale, then it makes hard to you only put a hundred birds in a pen that should have 300 birds. Cause you know, that they're going to get too much exercise and not gain. So, um, yeah, well, cool. It, well, it, it go goes ahead. back to your numbers too. Yeah. It, that goes back to your numbers too. You know, that's a, that's a big thing that, uh, we didn't necessarily experience this, but I've, I've seen other farmers, um, who have put themselves in a horrible situation by going out and saying, uh, well, you know, this infrastructure, if we, if we say the Salatin style pens and then we use the larger like hoop structures, like you're talking about, well, the hoop structures, uh, a better structure, I'm going to use this because, you know, it's the, uh, top shelf or whatever mm-hmm. it may be, uh, item that I can, that I can get, you still have to be able to produce enough birds and process those birds and store those and then sell those birds for that to be able to make you money. Um, you, there's a sweet spot and you can't just go out and buy an expensive anything, um, to try to make it work. If you don't have the way to actually, you know, produce enough within that infrastructure to pay for it. So there's that, like you said, the scales are, are super important. Yeah. Yeah. And running your numbers on all those scales too. Um, because you know, at at some certain scales, certain things become incredibly profitable and certain things become horribly inefficient. Um, and I think that one thing you said earlier about, you know, having a full truck going to the processor with, you know, 22 cows instead of three, that's huge. 
um, that makes a huge difference in depending on the size of, um, of the uh, equipment you have. So, well, I really appreciate your time today coming on. It's always fun to chat about the business side and uh, to hear kind of the success you're having down there. Anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Michael, I, I really appreciate you having us. Um, you know, we can be found at ColfaxCreekFarm.com, um, Colfax Creek Farm on Facebook and on Instagram. And, uh, you know, we're always here to help anybody that we can. Always excited to learn with other farmers. Um, people can find my contact information um, on either the website or our social media. I'm always happy to help answer questions or, you know, bounce ideas off of or, you know, any, anything that I can do to help another farmer, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. And you actually guys do ship nationwide, right? Uh, we, we're shipping regionally right now. Regionally. We're not doing okay. nationwide. Yeah. Yeah. We're not shipping um, nationwide at this point. But okay. Do... Gotcha. Yellow and blue. So it's basically, yeah, Missouri, pretty much East and not quite to the Northern part of Maine and not quite into, well, teeny bit of Texas. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, awesome. Again, thanks so much for coming on. And yes, it's ColfaxCreekFarm.com. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael. Absolutely. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.